Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our member event with Charlotte Wells, director of the critically acclaimed debut feature After Sun. Charlotte spoke to fellow filmmaker Barry Jenkins, also a producer on After Sun, about portraying a father and daughter relationship, getting her visual style across, and her experiences from prep through to the edit. We hope you enjoy. Thank you very much uh, for uh, for having me um, and for facilitating the screening of After Sun. Uh, the Directors UK has always been very good to me, uh, so it's an honor to be able to serve the Directors UK by moderating uh, this Q&A. Interesting Q&A, uh, because I also have the distinction and the privilege of being the producer uh, of the film uh, and just feel so uh, blessed to be in the Charlotte Wells orbit and to have had anything to do uh, with the making of this film. Uh, Charlotte, uh, talk to me about how the project came to be and why it was set and the place that it was set. Wow, yeah. Um, It's been a long time. Like, and it's funny because the longer this goes on, the longer it has been. (laughs) Like, it's gonna be come up for eight years fairly soon. I think it was about seven years ago I made my first short, and I think in a lot of ways this was a continuation of that, at least in spirit and not consciously, not even in a way I think I really understood until quite recently. Um, but it's certainly an exploration or continued exploration of similar themes. And uh, yeah, we came toward the, f- the end of film school, and it's that time where people start talking about features, and I had really only just made one short and was still figuring out what I was doing because I was there as a producer and um, defected uh, kind of to to directing after having a really fulfilling experience making that first short film. And uh, yeah, I took what was called an independent study with a professor and we just talked about father-daughter dynamic type films. And I began to think about what this might be and it started off as something quite fictional, a bit more conventionally structured. But over the course of um, writing, I kind of used my own memories and experiences to to form that skeleton outline of the, the first draft of the script. And I think at a certain point, the process that I had put myself through remembering became part of the fabric of, of the film. And I think it was always heading in that direction, honestly. It just took a long time for me to figure out exactly what interested me most in this because it evolved over time. Um, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. One, one of the things you mentioned was this dynamic of uh, father-daughter films, and it does feel like just cinema as a whole. It's only a little over a century years old, the medium itself, or at least this form of storytelling through images, but it seems to be dominated by men making films about mothers, or at least it feels like that sort of genre has many more entries uh, than than this. Um, th- th- was that something you, you thought about or, or considered? I, I know the movie's rooted in some personal aspects, but it is interesting because there's not many, many places of uncharted or less charted territory. I do think this is one of them. Yeah, I think I had some awareness that it was less charted um, and that the type of father I wanted to write was less charted. And if I wasn't aware of that at the beginning, I became increasingly aware of it as I as I progressed and started to think about 
traps that I might fall into or cliches I might succumb to without realizing it. Um, and, and that was true, I think. Like when I talk about that earlier fictional, more fictional, more conventional version of the script, it it fell more into that, um, like a relationship that becomes somehow more honest over the course of the film, you know? And in realizing that I was falling into that, it clarified for me that that wasn't what I wanted it to be. And I wanted it to start off from a really warm, intimate, loving place. And that the conflict wasn't primarily going to be derived from their relationship. It was going to, it was going to come from their individual experiences outside of the time they spend together. Mm. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about, I just want to be really clear. The earlier version of the script was more fictionalized or less fictionalized? More. And it wasn't even a script. It was the idea. It was mm-hmm. like an earlier version of the idea. Because once I actually finally, finally wrote the script after years of trying, it it was in essence the same film. I mean, it it, it came a long way from that first draft, but the, the essence of the film is, is very much the same. Um, it still is dealing in memory. It's still about sorting through the past, trying to maybe reach for something. Um, but the idea was, yeah, a, a bit more, no, it, it was more fictional, I think. And it's funny to say it like that, because I know we talk a lot about this being personal and how autobiographical, I suppose, it, it was of sorts. And in a way, that early version and this version are on par when I think about, like, did this stuff happen in this order? Like, the answer is no to both versions. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. yet and and my own kind of like memories from like people in place also would have informed that version but i think the difference is that it that this version builds to a feeling and that mm-hmm. feeling is very much mine whereas the other version was kind of telling a story about two characters on a trip you know? mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I love that you the way we the way you're using the word fictional is is very interesting because uh, there's nothing there's nothing that says fiction can't get to truth, um, but it sounds like when you use the word fictional in regards to the other version of the script, and that's talking about the archetypes of this sort of like son mother sort of this almost this like not necessarily Oedipal, but this sort of relationship because men have dominated the, the stories we receive in arts and letters for so long versus the version of the story you wanted to tell, which is rooted in something very personal. It's almost like like made up or, or make believe. And those traditions are something that you could be drawn into. And it sounds like getting closer to yourself was a natural way to, to get away from that. The other thing you mentioned that I think is really cool because this film for me is somewhat in dialogue with Celine Sciamma's last film, uh, Petite Mama. And I remember her doing Q and A's about that film and saying that that film was a progression for her of getting away from the notion that drama had to have conflict in order to be essential or be invigorating. And I think watching this film, there's something about it. There is conflict, but it's not the traditional conflict that we associate with dramatic storytelling. Uh, was that a conscious decision? Did that evolve when you moved from this more 
fictional story that was moving on a A to B to C character arc? Um, or is it something that, that was a part of your attentions from the beginning? No, I think it's a really interesting question that like gets to the heart of all writing, which, and there's different ways to phrase it. And this is like, at least what I learned in film school is everyone had like a different way of getting at this. Like, what's the story? What's the revelation? What's the conflict? Like, mm -hmm. why, what questions are your audience asking? Um, what, what, what is the suspense? Um, mm -hmm. And I think they're all getting at the same thing and they're slightly different ways in to a question that's important to ask, which mm -hmm. um, is what keeps somebody watching, which on the one hand, I don't feel like it's a question we should ever ask, <laughs> mm. but, um, but people do. And I do when I write at points um, when I'm trying to find some type of clarity for myself. And so, yeah, there was a point, at which I removed a lot of conflict from the script, even the the script I did have, not some previous unwritten version, but the script that I did have still followed what with still followed I think some more typical tendency toward a three act structure that that looked to build conflict from within the relationship that would kind of explode at a certain point. And it's funny because like the beats of that still exist. I, like the lost mask in that that early draft was kind of the first domino to fall. And it's not that like that's still untrue. They, they still have these moments, you know, like they still have a day where they're constantly missing each other um, that kind of culminates in karaoke and them spending the night apart. But it's not, it's not overplayed. I tried really hard not to blow it out of to, to make it uh, of greater importance that it would have been to the characters in the moment, you know? Like the next day she was locked out and she brushes it off. It's not such a big deal. You know, it's a bigger deal to him that he let that happen, but not really to her. And so I didn't want to like give too much weight to those moments in the script. And it was partly also having gone through various like lab, you know, environments, receiving feedback that was constantly pushing me toward more tension in the relationship. And I think sometimes the best feedback is the feedback you disagree with because it, again, it's like all about clarifying for yourself what your own intention is and it's hard. And sometimes you hear something and you just think, no, like that isn't what I want this to be. And that was what happened. And the, the last draft of the script, there were two major, major rewrites, I think. Um, one was centered around the character of Callum and, and one was about removing the more obvious or typical um, sources of tension and conflict between the two characters. I, I want to talk about, because uh, we could keep going down uh, this thread. It's interesting, in the Q&As we've done, I think we're hitting places that we haven't hit before, um, yeah. which is great. Um, but I, I did want to talk about casting a bit, because I think anybody who sees the film uh, comes away um, just taken with uh, with Frankie and Paul's uh, performances. Um, and it's kind of cool because you're working in the tradition of another celebrated, because you are celebrated now, uh, another celebrated Scottish filmmaker, uh, Lynn Ramsey, who is known for pairing, you know, uh, uh, traditional actors or, you know, um, 
you know, actors with careers. And then I guess what you would say, uh, what you would call non-actors, you know, people from the real world and blending those uh, performance styles within the same work to create something that I think is almost like this third rail of performance, you know, that maybe can be achieved through heightened technique, um, but I think it's best got out through this collision of uh, of trained performance and just uh, unbridled energy. So um, was Lynn a reference for the pairing of, of Paul for building the cast of, of After Sun? Um, and just tell me about, uh, you know, casting Paul and Frankie in the lead roles. That's interesting in terms of casting. I'm not sure I thought about it. Yeah. I don't know what that I thought about, about it now. What you thinking about I'm it thinking now. about it. Well, no, I, I'm working through her films. And I'm like, well, she was working with the family for a long time in shorts. And then, like, when did she first blend? Maybe Ratcatcher? I don't know. But, um, no. Well, I think and Gas Man, she's already blending, I think. Uh, although, I guess yeah, she made she made... She made her family into actors, but I think there are <laughs> there are trained thespians and gas man. But a uh, little insider, Lynn Ramsey, That's insider baseball short. here. Uh, it is a perfect short. Get off my daddy's knee! <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. All right, um, uh, let's, no, continue. Again, let's again, continue. Again, let's continue. Let's continue. Okay, okay, uh, okay. Talk to you about casting. casting. Uh, yes, Paul and Frankie. Um. Yeah, I don't. So, yeah, I, I don't think I was thinking of Lynn Ramsey specifically with regard to casting, but I certainly am always in, in many other um, facets of filmmaking. Um, yeah, like I'm interested in working with non-professional actors. I think it's always a gift, you know. Um, there's also a huge responsibility that comes with that in terms of like indoctrinating people into this industry, especially young people where you have some degree of control over their experience in this one instance and then not really thereafter, you know? And I felt that as soon as we started casting Sophie, because that's where we started. Um, I worked with Lucy Party, um, who's an amazing casting director who also works with Ben Ramsey, among many other people, um, Andrew Arnold, Jonathan Glazer. And um, we started there. We knew it would be the hardest role to cast. It was a six-month-long process. We had submissions from 800 kids. It was the height of the second wave of COVID, and our access was very limited. So we had to be quite resourceful about how we spread the word, and that ended up being through um, social media, through still through schools and sports clubs, but you know, you're writing to people rather than showing up and meeting people. So even though it was 800, it, it would have been, I imagine, many times more than that had we kind of been in, in pre-pandemic world. But nonetheless, we met some amazing kids and we gave them these exercises to do, to record at home. And then eventually that kind of progressed to meeting some of them on Zoom. And um, we tried to give them an opportunity to, to kind of grow with the process and show us something new every time. And and build confidence and uh that culminated in making 16 kids in person in glasgow february of last year and one of them was frankie and frankie it's funny thinking back to all her original tapes um because that was definitely the kid that we met she's like utterly embarrassed by the photograph that her mom submitted <laughs> like she's wearing a very specific look that she only ever wore once and it was for that photo and i think feels somewhat misrepresented by it um but she was just amazing she was amazing she did these exercises with lucy and she like would flip between really quite different emotional states really quickly and wouldn't carry it over like wouldn't let it 
hold her down when it was time to move on. And I think that's a really special trait. Um, and she's a very special kid. And and at that point, once we started to have a sense of who Sophie was, we, we looked to Cass Callum and that was also open to non-professional actors. Uh, but again, COVID was really a huge challenge in that. Um, and our focus had been on Sophie, but in that process, our eyes were open always. They always are. Um, but I think there was appeal to an appeal to to combining, especially for a kid who had never performed before, to bring a professional actor who could, you know, uh, be a guide um, in that. And, um, and Paul's name came up very early, but he wasn't available. I remember watching videos like anything I could get my hands on, other than of course normal people, which had come out a year before. Um, and just being very enamored by the idea, uh, but then having to kind of pursue um, other other thoughts and, and a casting process until our dates shifted and, and he became available um, and we shared the script and we just had a really great conversation, the kind of conversation you always look to have with anyone in life, the kind that you leave kind of levitating and knowing that you've just kind of made a connection that was meaningful and um, he was a huge partner in it, you know, partner to me, partner to Frankie. Uh, we all liked each other very much, and that just changes everything. This makes it so much easier. Yeah, I, I always like to say, because I've worked with children uh, over the last few projects, especially with a non-actor who's a child, the actor in the scene is helping you. You know, they, they kind of have no choice, because you call action and you relinquish all control, all yeah. power. And with someone who's not used to performing, all predictability um, and so it takes so a really takes a really understanding and and caring and empathetic adult actor and and Paul has all those qualities in spades. I don't know if that was uh, a part of casting him, um, but 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 I imagine it certainly uh, helped the rapport between he and Frankie. You know, I have to say as a producer, you know, I had a feeling the project was going to be beautiful and it was going to work, but when the child actor has to carry so much of the film, you just don't know until you see that kid. And when Frankie's tapes came through, especially her callback, I was like, oh, okay, shit. The movie's gonna work. The movie's gonna uh, work, we're good, we're good to go. Uh, I mean, Paul was a nice cherry on top, but once we had Frankie, <laughs> I was like, oh, the movie's gonna go, the movie's gonna go. Um, amazing that the two of them uh, work so so well together. The other thing you mentioned that I think uh, shows just how thoughtful and, and caring you are uh, as an artist and as a human being is, you're absolutely right. When you bring a kid who hasn't been a part of this world, isn't a showbiz kid, into this world, you do feel this sense of responsibility. And and I'll talk about myself just for a second, but the, the kid in Moonlight, uh, Alex Hibbert, who plays the kid in the first chapter of that story, he's like 19 years old now, and he's booked many films and multiple series of television. And he's like a provider for for his mom, for his family. And he's done so well with this. And it makes me so proud, even prouder than the awards that Moonlight won, that this kid who wasn't an actor came into our process, drank it all up, and then really just with the structure of his family and his life just did so well in it. It's just something that makes me so proud. And, and I feel the same thing between, uh, be, between you and Frankie. Um, What's up with Scotland? Yeah, I mean, man? it's this really so nice to know that that's a possibility, honestly, that like it can be a really positive experience and just can continue, you know? 
Not well, that there well, won't it be bumps be. like there are in growing up, but exactly yeah. it can be but you have to put the right energy into it and everything about you is putting the right energy i was gonna say what's up with scotland man i i, I watched this random television show on hbo called the head <laughs> and uh, there's a young woman in it named Catherine o'donnelly and she was like working as a barista and this director uh randomly saw her and said hey would you come audition for the show she didn't realize it was the lead she's fantastic um, and so I had lunch with her and she described this whole um, basically performance sort of uh, workshopping they have throughout the country in all these small provinces. And that's where she took up uh, acting, the, her technique. And she's amazing. So, yeah, you could have found a Callum uh, uh, by doing a live search. But uh, I'm glad I'm glad you found Paul because he did just as good. I'm glad I found Paul, else. too. I know, yeah. and his accent's so convincing. My uh, my cousin, yes, because he is not a Scot. They were like, <laughs> he's not a Scot, but I mean, you yeah. know, it's funny because that was something in the casting process that that was like an interesting learning curve, which was mm. like right at the beginning. I was like, he has to be, he has to be Scottish. Like it's just non negotiable. Mm -hmm. It has to be. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sometimes you learn that other things are more important. You know. And like who yeah. that person is, and and what he brings, and and ultimately he 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 had like a yeah he he had what I was really looking for in in the character, you know. And uh, at the end of the day, w was able to you know be Scottish in the role. Frankie didn't know that he he wasn't for a little while, and he always stayed in accent with her right until the last day of the shoot. And he said that when he stopped, when he dropped out of his accent, he found it really hard. It took a few days to adjust and talking to Frankie because he had, he'd really held it the whole time. Oh my um, goodness. But um, no, I'm glad. I'm so like, it, obviously now it's easy to say that I'm glad it was these two, but I was glad it was these two from the day they arrived on set. Well, well I, I think uh, in a film like this, that is personal and is so uh, idiosyncratic, singular, I can't, think of the right word, your approach to visual storytelling is very uh, unique. And the movie kind of lives within you. So I think your sense of purpose, I think your vision is what houses these things. It's what grounds them. And so I think that your intention um, is enough that, that someone with Paul's talents, as you saw, he could crawl inside the character uh, and get it. Um, to, to the people watching, uh, there's a there's a Q and A box. I promise I'm not going to keep running my mouth. I'm going to start uh, pulling questions from the Q and A box um, in a in a few moments. Uh, I see there's three questions in there now. If anybody else wants to get one in, well, there's three, but two of them are from uh, Naomi Waring or Waring, excuse me. Um, uh, so if anybody else wants to get some questions in, please put them uh, in the chat box. Um, uh, you know, so, so so Charlotte, in preparation for this. I went back and I looked through all the notes I sent you over watching the mini cuts of this film. Um, and I want to talk about that and talking about how much faith and trust you put in the audience, you know, both in the quietness and the stillness uh, of the piece um, and in the balance between showing uh, and telling. Because some of my early notes on this film, they were aggressive. Um, and I remember one of the first notes I sent you was uh, the rave should only feature one person. You should do a cut where there's only one person in the rave footage. And, and you didn't reply to that, that notes document for a while. 
But, but when you did, you did something, I imagine as young filmmakers uh, watching this q and I hope they are at least, um, because when I was a young filmmaker, if I got a note like that, I would have rejected it outright. Um, I had to learn this lesson the hard way, because if I get a note, I try it. I, if it comes from someone I respect or trust, I try it. Doesn't mean I have to like ingest the note, but I try it. And your reply to me after, I think this is the longest it took you to reply to me, because I got the two months, was... Thank you. Thank you for the very thorough and detailed (laughs) notes. I want you to know I'm very grateful. I tried them all. I didn't take many, but they pushed me in directions (laughs) that that helped evolve the film. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. Fair game. Fair point. Fair point. (laughs) So so where where do you uh, where did you get the confidence uh, in your voice? Because it's your first feature um, to be able to do that. Because, again, as a first-time feature filmmaker, I would have been like, fuck this guy. There's no way. The race of a very particular purpose. I'm never going to do that. I'm never moving this scene, blah, blah, blah. But you're like, yeah, I'll try it. I'm going to wait <laughs> let you know. That's, my, that, that's, my, <laughs> that's my editor in the room. My editor is like, no, we're not trying anything. Absolutely not. No notes. Um, so we're a good balance because I will try it. I will try everything. And I think like, I remember kind of, like, one of your later notes was all about the balcony, and I forget exactly what it was, but I remember having, like, a Barry balcony uh, sequence on, mm. on, on, in the project, um, and it, it being the reason we got to that shot, which, um, you know, slowly zooms over sleeping Sophie in the opening and reaches mm. Callum dancing on the balcony, and it plays out in one. That wasn't that wasn't in the cut until the last couple of weeks, which is wild because it's such a like seminal moment in the film in terms of its visual language and in terms mm. of giving the audience the confidence. I hope that we as filmmakers knew what we were doing and that, that mm. you know, if you lean in with us, mm. then, you know, we're going to take you somewhere. Um, mm. We'd also like, I didn't really shoot what well, I didn't, I didn't overcut the script and I think it's important to have enough to work with because you never execute properly and goodness knows we did Mm. not execute fully, but we had enough to make it work. Um, But there also was for the young filmmakers because every filmmaker goes through that. Even Martin Scorsese at this point, I'm sure you are never going to bat 1000. You're never going to put every penalty in the back of the net. It's just not going to happen. It's impossible. It's impossible. So you have to have enough to to cover yourself. And I'm not talking about like extraneous scenes that you don't want in the film. In fact, that that was exactly my point is I never shot anything I didn't, I wouldn't have wanted in the film, Mm -hmm. but I also didn't make it so lean that you had, you would have to execute perfectly, you know, because you can't, Mm -hmm. it's just not, it's not possible. Um, And uh, yeah, so the, the rave, I mean, the, the, you weren't the only person to give that note actually um about the rave and i think like that one is interesting specifically because the rave was the rave and callum were the two biggest challenges with the script the rave was so weird on the page i'm amazed anybody let me go forward with it and i didn't know if it worked <laughs> i wanted to find out by making it rather than self-editing the script to, to something mm-hmm. that was more um likely to make sense <laughs> make sense um, but it always built to this dance sequence, this like dance sequence that splits reality and, and 
fantasy to some degree, which is what I'd done in my last short film, which I didn't realize till the edit, uh, ridiculously. And, um, and I just never knew how the film ended without that, which made taking the rave apart so difficult. And it was also terrifying because it had to work. If it didn't, if it didn't work, we didn't really have a film. We certainly didn't have a good film. And um, yeah, so it was, some things were easy to have confidence in because we had to, it had to be blind faith that we were going somewhere because there was no film without it. And, and I was working with an editor who had heaps of it and, and we were a good balance for each other because he never lost. You remember he, we watched the first assembly cut together that was like two and a half hours long. And he's like, Charlie, I'm only going to say it to you once. I think you made a good film. <laughs> and, uh, and now, it's, you know, it's, like, it's, now the it's, work it's important to hear that. It's important to hear that. It's so important yeah, to hear that. Because Especially from mess. your closest collaborator. Disaster, you know, it was like, like it was so far off the film it became, but mm -hmm. like knowing, knowing that he really thought it was there. It was, it was incredibly important. Um, mm -hmm. And uh yeah. So, but I think notes, I think notes are essential and I do try them. I try all of them. I think you have to. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like I was talking to your editor about this recently, who um, Joy was talking about sometimes picking your moment for when to share a note, you know, because mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. the director's not always ready to take it or hear it. And, you know, sometimes you need to sit with something for a while before you, you think, okay, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this. And in fact, I think when we did that LA feedback screening, she was the one who suggested that the film open the way that it does with mm -hmm. this, um, you know, the sequence where she's kind of interviewing oh, that's right. almost on the TV yeah, camera. Yeah, yeah. And I was so like, Joy, Joy is really no, good that way. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. <laughs> not in a million years. And then Adela, our producer, was like, I'm literally going to come to New York and sit in that room until I watch you try that note. And she came to New York. We would have tried it anyway eventually. She came to New York and she's like, have you tried it yet? And we're like, oh, you just haven't not got around to it yet. No. And she's like, try it right now. <laughs> and we try it right there. And like Blair and I are ready to be proven right. And we were proven very wrong very quickly because it was clear just immediately on hate and play that it was gonna work. You know what? That's that that's how it happens, especially especially when everyone cares about not not finding the film they want you to make but finding the best version of the film you've made coming yeah. from within you. And I think that's what, what those notes were about. I think it's why Adela yeah. felt passionate enough to get on the plane and come see you. I have some more stuff I want to talk about, but um, when, I, when I sent my request for Q&As, the box boosted up by like 10 questions. So I'm going to get to some <laughs> of these now. Uh, you good? Okay. You good for some audience questions? Yeah, um, let's do it. I'll go with the first one from Arini. Uh, Constantina Dow, I'm so sorry. I am gonna. I somebody can put the chat box. Just say our first names. Don't even try to pronounce our last names if you want. Uh, but out of respect, I'm always trying to pronounce the first and last name. The question is from Marini. Uh, I would like to ask Charlotte why she decided not to show her main protagonist and her life as an adult more. Um, good question. Which I would almost rephrase as like, why did you choose to show us so much of your protagonist in her adult life? Um, because <laughs> uh, there's probably more of her than there was, you know. Like I don't know. This is like the kind of thing. Do I say this or not? Like the the first draft of the script, the first full draft, had the adult version of Sophie 
kind of sit within the scenes on the holiday mm. um in a in a kind of uh christmas carol type of type of way and over the course of the film they became a little bit more interactive um with with the the place and people and uh it just didn't feel like it was elevating anything and so it it came out um and one of the scenes from that draft was her waking up in the middle of the night or being awake in the middle of the night not necessarily waking up and uh and it always stayed it always stayed in the script and mm. i thought it was a little nuts and i never thought it would really work and sometimes i did sometimes i didn't sometimes i did and when i didn't um that was actually something that dela always really liked and that is the kind of thing that you think okay i'll shoot it because maybe it will be great maybe it won't work and then we don't need to use it um but that's the kind of thing where i'm thinking about not over editing um but i never wanted like a really conventional um present timeline Margaret Tate who's this kind of like a uh, acknowledgement to in in the stack of books in the film and that long tv shot that plays out in the reflection made a film her only narrative feature film called Blue Bat Permanent which is not a dissimilar story by coincidence and it does have a timeline very much set in the present day of a woman speaking to her romantic partner telling the story of her mother and it, it kind of dips in and out and i just didn't I don't know. I, I I was interested in whether I could tell the story without that and whether I could create a really strong feeling of memory without overly um presenting it. And it's like I think about the other end of the spectrum, Terence Davis's um The Long Day Closes, which opens with this steady cam shot down a um down like a, a street. It is very much in disrepair and it's raining and it turns slowly into this like dilapidated house with the roof caved in. And then it just crossfades to many years earlier, a young boy sitting on the stairs of that same house. And that's all mm. he needs to do. This is a mm. memory, you know, and you never see anybody. And so mm. it was just a huge conversation, like the push and pull of how much we see of adult Sophie. Um, you know, like she's reflected in that image in, in the opening scene. Um, and then we we eventually find her on the couch at the end, and that was also not in the original script. The original script began and ended in the rave, so all you saw of adult Sophie was the rave and that scene where she wakes up. But you know, like we developed the script and considered what's too little and what's too much, at least from my perspective. And and I added that scene at the end to kind of anchor it. And we talked a lot about that, you know, during notes. Like there were cuts where that scene was the opening shot. Um, but when do you need to see her? We we never wanted to feel like at the end when you pan away from the TV that it's some big aha moment, you know? Mm-hmm. You should already have a really deep-seated sense that this is from her perspective. That it's not some, like, reveal. We're not playing a trick mm-hmm. and, and disclosing our hand. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing how it's almost like um, like a like a coffee grinder, you know? You just literally two clicks this way and the coffee tastes totally different. You know, three clicks that way. To you, to you, totally Barry, you love your coffee. You love your coffee. So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, I want to go more concrete, more process for the next question. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll bounce back and forth. I believe it's uh, <clears throat> Aaron Kramer says, 
beautiful film. It really stayed with me. Can you talk about your prep? How much were you storyboarding and blocking and diagramming? And how much were you finding things in the space with the actors? Um, blocking, I maybe half learned to do on this film. Uh, very much like thrown in the deep end. Having previously made films with like nine of my friends, the first day I think we had 70 extras, like seven cast members. And it was just my worst nightmare. Um, but what we really did was... Greg, the cinematographer, and I spoke. We spoke for months leading up to production. We started on page one, um, right where I'm sitting, um, and we started to shot list. And, and as soon as we get a few pages in, almost everything we'd done up until that point became irrelevant because it was less about coming up with a definitive shot list as it was discovering for ourselves the language of the film. And the script, like Greg is very rigorous about script and story. That's always the most important thing. And uh, he's also a filmmaker, like an amazing writer and just has, that's, that's his focus. And so we spent hours, we got maybe halfway through the script before we arrived in Turkey and maybe another 25% of the way through it. And then we were just every morning and every night, like sitting, talking about shots and our approach. And sometimes it worked. And sometimes it didn't. And that was also a collaborative process with a production designer because we're we're setting up rooms to accommodate shots, you know? Like I chose the location because I had this idea of a two shot of Callum with his arm in a bucket sitting on the back while he's taking the cast off and, and Sophie lying on the bed. So she ends up in a chair, which was a last minute decision because it looked better. Um, which is all to say we put in like a tremendous amount of preparation so that when we got to a point that we hadn't shot listed or we got to a point where something just wasn't working. We, we knew what to do. And like, we didn't have rules. We were very anti-rule. We have no rule, but we definitely had strategies and ideas. Maybe it's just semantic at the end of the day, but plan B was always just do what feels right. And that, that was most relevant with shooting Callum alone, which were the most difficult scenes to approach because we wanted to convey this idea that, these scenes are are through Sophie's point of view, adult Sophie's point of view, that they're to some degree maybe imagined um, or imagined with some uh, gaps filled in later. And we wanted to keep him arm's length, kind of abstracted uh, or obstructed from view in some way. And sometimes it didn't work and, and it was just about figuring out what felt right. We only storyboarded the most technical parts. We storyboarded the rave. We storyboarded elaborate underwater sequences that aren't in the final cut. Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting. And it's totally fine for those sequences to not be in the final cut. Um, you know, they are in the final cut. Uh, I remember we, there's some scenes from Moonlight that aren't in the film. And I was apologizing to, apologizing to Mahershala. And he said, oh, they aren't in the cut, but they're in the performance. And so I think the energy yeah. of those sequences is, is very much in the film. Um, uh, I wanted to just, that answer actually bridges uh, onto a very uh, interesting next question that's in the, the Q&A box from Rita Osai. Uh, Rita says, loved your film. Peter Greenaway says, we have a cinema based on text straight from the bookstore. And what the industry needs to do is move towards a truly visual medium. Do you see yourself ever making a feature film without using a screenplay? 
Um, uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know what, uh, what's your take on that? It's interesting. It's funny. Based on your last answer, I was going to comment that, you know, very different projects, but the Underground Railroad, we had a similar situation where because of some logistics and budget and last minute changes, we could only storyboard or shot list, excuse me, the first three episodes we filmed, uh, which were out of sequence. It was episodes one, two, and 10, purely because of the location we were at. And then everything else, we kind of just winged it. Just like you guys, we would just meet up on weekends or at night and try to figure out what the next episode needed to feel like. But this really beautiful thing came out of it. And I'll get to the answer now. The Tennessee section of the film was only meant to be, of the show, excuse me, knock on wood. It's a TV show. (laughs) It's a film, Barry. That's the thing, though. The Tennessee section was meant to only be one episode. But in making it, the actor who played Jasper did such a wonderful job that we found ourselves creating story on the fly, but out of the energy of what was happening on set. And ultimately, we didn't realize what we were doing, but we built a whole hour based just around him and then completed the second half of the episode and another hour based upon um, uh, Peter Mullen, another one of your countrymen, Peter Mullen and, and Joel's performances. So I don't know, intentionally would never do that, would never do that. You know, I, I like, even though I I endorse the question, I do think film is a visual medium. If I just was concerned about telling stories, I'd be writing novels. And yet I do think you need a skeleton to hang the visuals off of. And to me, that's something written, whether it's a script or a treatment or an outline or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, what's well, a screenplay? Like, my screenplay opened with a shot of a like battery rolling down the back of the bus and then being gradually passed back up and you got a sense of everyone who was on this holiday until it reaches Callum and Sophie. And so many people were like, what? Get rid of that. Why on earth is that in your script? And I was like, that's my favorite part of the script. Again, sadly not in the film. So difficult to execute uh, (laughs) as it turns out, although we did. Um, So it just, yeah, like what what, I I think there needs to be a framework and, and people work in different ways you know like you have Joanna Hogg who as I understand it works from like a a much um less conventional screenplay you know that that has kind of key points to hit but is is more discovered um on set with actors uh I definitely write very visually so my my like this screenplay at least wasn't uh you know just like dialogue and, and bare description um, and I don't think yours are either because I have some of them saying here as reference points always. Um, uh, uh, there's quite a few questions about a particular topic, so I'm going to use one one question, but I think it'll it'll address many of your your questions in here. Uh, Luca Napa asks, uh, "I'd like to know more about the process of filming the tape recorder footage in the film, as Francesca Corio had to not only act in them but also operate the tape recorder." Was it harder to film those scenes? Did they choose a particular workflow for this, or was there some improv involved? No, they were the they were so fun to shoot, and I always thought they would be. And it's still a film set, which I forgot it would be. You still have to have a sound mixer. Definitely tried to talk my way out of that. <laughs> and everyone's like, "Charlie, absolutely not." 
um, poor Sun guys uh, always get the worst um, deal. And my and my DP uh, is also a very talented Sun guy. Um, so he always had he he was always looking out for the Sun team. And um, there were still productions. We still had monitors, but as far as possible, I would try to close the door and just let the actors be alone. Um, like when she's recording his arm cast in, in the shower, like, I think it made it easier for her having the camcorder. It's like, you, you know, it's like giving, giving an actor an action. Like it always, you know, it, it, I don't know. Like, I think it allows you to be a bit more instinctive in some ways because there's this other thing happening, but Frankie found those scenes. I don't know. I mean, I can't speak for her. She did very well in those scenes. And they were always really exciting to watch. There's like photographs of being on set when she did the the one on the boat because I couldn't even see her. Like there was no there was no way for me to really be there. So Greg and I would share like a headphone, and there's this picture of us just like listening because we know that it's amazing. We can hear it. It doesn't matter what she's recording as long as it's not the rest of the crew, which sometimes it was. Um, it, they were just really freeing. Many of them were scripted, a few of them weren't, and there's so much amazing stuff. There's one really special moment in particular that I wish I could just release at some point um, of Frankie talking about how palm trees grow. And uh, one is in the film, the, the scene where Callum says she has a big head. That was uh, that was just kind of caught in the fly production head. Grown to a halt one day because our bus had broken down before it arrived to set and I just grabbed the actors, grabbed a couple changes of clothes and we just ran um, before anyone could stop us and then we recorded some some footage and those moments were just really special and, and very pure and it's where the line between self and performance is probably for Frankie most blurred, you know like Paul, again, he's a professional actor, he was very much in character but uh, Frankie was just out there having fun and, and while Frankie is an amazing actor she truly is in a way I never expected to find I think so much of the job of working with kids is just giving them space you know and uh that was a really easy way to give them space Um, I'm gonna compliment you I'm sorry I have to compliment you there because I think I think there's a wonderful performance in everyone actor or non-actor I think it takes a really empathetic empathetic human being empathetic director to help that person realize that so you said, oh, she went to places I couldn't even believe or expect. Um, I think you went to those places with her. Um, I think your direction, your guidance uh, helped her get there. I didn't mean to cut you off, but the thought was no, no, no. I, I wanted to make no, sure No, and do you know, there. like, some of those were the most satisfying moments on set because I think, like, there were moments where Frankie did struggle. Like, she just thought the dialogue was, in her words, cringe, or she just wasn't <laughs> connecting to it. Total troll, absolute troll. Um <laughs> Or she just wasn't connecting to it. And like you're under this crazy time pressure and like film sets are like very stressful places. It, it feels like life or death. And uh, if Frankie was struggling with something, it would just force me to like push it all away and just sit down and really be present with her because she was never going to get there if she could feel my stress. Mm-hmm. And it, it was kind of a gift to be forced to do that for myself as well, rather than just helping her. And then when I could, when I did, it was really... It's an amazing feeling, you know, like feeling like it was a collaboration and we got there together. Those were definitely mm-hmm. some of my favorite moments on, on set. 
Uh, there are quite a few questions about uh, how we came together and how long it took to make the film. Uh, oh, we were just about to get the hook, <laughs> uh, but I'll just I'll just blast through that one and say that uh, yeah. both the, both Adele and I watch a lot of uh, short films, uh, and unofficially, our company Pastel, we we look to make first and second features. That's just kind of been our thing. You know, people who are more established think we're too small to work with, or or we don't have the chops. I don't know, um, but uh, but we're happy to play in this space and. So we were in New York making a Bill Street could talk and uh, Adela uh, met up with uh, with Charlotte um, with with things like this. I just you know, people, uh, Adela or Mark will mention it to me. I was, I'd seen Charlotte's shorts. Yeah, that sounds cool. Well, let's do it, you know, uh, because <laughs> it's 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 not about me getting my voice into your film. Now, once it's in the can, then you know what I'm saying? Hey, I'm gonna send notes until the cows come home, you know, but but never in a forceful way. And so the process yeah. began back in uh, 2018, I guess, or 2017, maybe, um, uh, just with that first coffee between uh, Charlotte and Adela. And then just we just kept tabs and it took Charlotte a while to get a script together. Um, and uh, I spent and that just, first coffee just pitching my friends' projects. I was like, let me tell you about what my friends are doing. They're great. It's <laughs> like nah. <laughs> No, we need you. We need you. Um, and I'm so happy that uh, that we stuck with you and that you have faith to uh, to stick with us. Um, if y'all giving us the hook, you can. I was going to read uh, one more question. I saw the, the, the text box text box pop up. We're just having a good time. We could do this all day. Okay. Do you want to choose it? Because this, I I, I want to ask all of them, but uh, but 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 I can't. I don't know. Uh, can you see them, Charlotte? You, you choose which yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. I can. I can answer. see. I can see. I can see it. Cool. 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 Um, I mean, I can answer a really, this is a very like practical question, but maybe I have some thoughts which are, um, wait, I lost it. How long was the shoot and how long was the edit? Uh, obviously there's a straightforward answer to that question, which is the shoot was six weeks. We shot five day weeks. Um, we, so we had like 20, I think we had like 28, 29 days in the end. But, but and, how many uh, forest fires almost uh, burned down the chute? How many natural disasters <laughs> did we experience? Um, at least one. Um, and then uh, and then we edited for seven months. And like I have to say that production wasn't so different than shorts. Like it, it was obviously a huge step up. Uh, there were a lot more people. But I realized quite quickly that I had to keep my attention focused on probably the same number of people that my attention would have been focused on in shorts, just to kind of be clear and communicative. And and those are just the people around you the most every day. Um, editing was so different. <laughs> it was like that was the the, the hardest part. The, the the most that I learned, apart from now, uh, on, on on the kind of having the opportunity to share and release the film. Editing was, was uh, yeah, was a really, like, huge learning curve and process. And I've been working professionally editing short, short form stuff, more commercial stuff for a living for the past few years. And it was just, like, so different. And it really was writing, you know? Like, you think of editing and you think of it being quite technical and sitting at a keyboard, and it just wasn't. It was exactly the same as writing the script. It was having index cards up on the wall, and it was sitting with my editor and just talking. And um, and sometimes we'd watch films and some days we learned to juggle and 
some days we went for a long lunch, um, but it was all work, you know, uh, and it was all working through the story and the characters and figuring out what what was most important and what you kind of had to bargain with for yourself and then let go of um, it, it in the end. But it was, uh, yeah, I'm lucky to have an editor that is a really good friend and is incredibly talented and that we could withstand each other for seven months um, because it's a, it's a long time. But it was the part of the process that caught me most off guard in, in how much stamina it requires, I think, after you've given so much of yourself in production. That, that mm. is really the beginning because mm. what began as infinite in some ways narrows down once on the page and then it's infinite again and you shoot and you cast and you find places and you're left with however many hours of footage and and then it's infinite again when you get to the edit because there's so many ways you can take things and it was uh seven months and it felt yeah felt longer <laughs> yeah and i just want to follow it up with two quick things one there's nothing funny about forest fires however uh, a film is an impossible thing, an impossible thing. And even the most delicate film has to overcome the most improbable uh, obstacles. And that was the case. And uh, you know that day I I thought it's the only day I we'd done, we'd done something and I was like, I wanted to do that better. And we spent time in the morning and I was like, I am going to make time to come back to this tonight. Uh, we'd mm. never made a day. <laughs> you know mm. and I was like we are gonna make our day and we're gonna come back to this show and we got back we did one take mm. and then it was surprise there's a forest fire on its way <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway um, I'm sorry the, go on no, and the one last thing I wanted to say just to piggyback you was you you started your answer by saying you know it wasn't the shoot production wasn't more difficult than making a short film and and I fully endorse that I, I think it's why with Pastel with Adela and I if we see a short film and we see that this filmmaker in four days could make something so potent, why couldn't they make something as potent over over 30 days? So if you are a young filmmaker watching this and you have you have aspirations of making features and you've made a great short, that is enough. I feel that is enough. And if you then have a feature script and someone says they believe in your short, they should also believe in your feature script. So if you uh, if you're trying to figure out, because stateside, I always hear, oh, but I need to meet this agent. I need to meet that blah blah blah. I was like, no, you need to just make something that's really potent, and then find people who believe in you. Because if you can do it in four days, you can do it in thirty. Um, uh, which was uh, which was the case here. And now I will shut if you up. have I that. See- if you have, if you have, I'm gonna like no. If you have the people who believe in you, like that's the hardest part. And I was really lucky yeah. to have you guys. But that is what that's what that's what you need. I can't imagine another way. Yeah. And we're done, I promise. We won't keep talking, I promise. We won't keep talking. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.